It really is a genuine blessing, isn't it, tonight to assemble and to gather like this. Certainly this day, this day recognized as Christmas on the calendar, is a day that does begin with the first six letters as Christ. And aren't we honored and thankful to be able to always consider Him? Jeff just led us in prayer and made mention of the sweet name of Jesus and what it means to live for Him every day. Tonight, as you give thought to a lesson entitled, The Last Days, I'd like to invite you to consider with me perhaps something that will be a motivation for each of us in light of the coming year, in light of, of course, the interesting things that often take place in the world around us. The Last Days, have you heard much about that expression or have you heard individuals make use of it? Well, as you probably could expect, the Bible does use that phrase as well. Let's motivate our lesson with this opening slide. Are you and I living in the last days? Are we living in those days? And as you perhaps appreciate this season of the year, and especially some of those months that are shortly to come, will be occasions and times on which much will be said about the last days. Certainly every time there is a conflict, a skirmish, a world event of some character, it often seems as if there is a key matter relating to the last days. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, it perhaps is reasonable to notice as this year winds to its conclusion and a new one dawns on the horizon. You and I might at least devote a few moments tonight to reflecting on these last days. How does the Bible use that phrase and how might you and I employ it correctly even as you and I use it too from time to time? And so it is, may I suggest, at the bottom of that slide, there are eight passages in the Bible wherein that phrase occurs. Now, since two of them are very, very closely related, we'll, of course, consider but seven total, but we'll group those two together into one. But let's study about them for the next few moments and use those ideas, and let's start like this one. The book of Genesis is the first time in all the Bible wherein that phrase occurs. The setting was a rather prolific one. Jacob had reached not only being an aged man, but quite frankly, the last moments of his life. And he gathers his sons around him and begins to urge them one by one, relating to them not only the features of the immediate future, but in some cases even matters of distant character concerning the tribes that their descendants would become. Well, you'll notice something interesting in verses 1 and 2 of that chapter. Again, that's Genesis 49, verses 1 and 2. Even Jacob, this aged man, who by the way, his death's recorded as that chapter ends. And on this occasion he says, I want to tell you boys what shall befall you in the last days. One by one he makes then an address to them. There's Reuben and Simeon and Levi and the others. But isn't it rather fascinating to notice in many ways very little complimentary is said to them. I've always thought that was rather sad, don't you think? Here you are as a parent who is leading or at least making your last statements to your children and sad to say that through the mind and wisdom of what God permitted him to know the future would become, he often had to tell them bad things are going to be descriptive of your children. However, to Judah he made this statement. He pointed down the stream of time, 20 centuries, and highlighted the grand power that would be among his descendants. And you and I know that was Jesus. But last days was stated on that occasion with reference to those events befalling the lives of the descendants of those boys. 
And at least with regard to Judah, we know it stretched down the stream of time so far. Look at the next one. Number two in the list. The next time in the Bible we find that phrase is not until the prophet Isaiah. In the second chapter of that rather interesting book, we notice that God again lifted back the curtain to the eyes of Isaiah in such a way that he was able to see again far distant into the future. And of course, that's perhaps the most familiar section, at least of the early part of that book. But you notice reference was made to the fact that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains. And all the nations would go, in fact, flow into it, and the law would go forth from Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, verses 2, 3, and 4. But the last days was referenced, and there you and I have no question as to what was clearly in the mind of the inspired writer. The last days in the Lord's house. Well, while we're at it, let's look at the Micah passage, and then let's talk more about both of them. A moment ago, Brother Eddie read from Micah chapter 4, and this passage is very similar to the one in Isaiah. But in the last days it shall come to pass, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Amazing, isn't it? To notice that here to these prophets, and in the case of Isaiah, 750 years prior to the birth of Jesus, in the case of Micah, a very similar figure, but you'll notice the last days was mentioned. The last days, you notice, was such that the law would go forth from Zion, from Jerusalem, and all people would go into the character of the structure of what was founded. The house of the God of heaven was, of course, under description. As you and I turn the page over to 1 Timothy 3, let's listen to the inspired writer make this statement, verse 15 of that same chapter. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The house of God's the church. And these two Old Testament prophets, Micah and Isaiah, were informed relative to the fact it'd be in the last days that structure, that entity would be founded. As you think about that, notice here then were two usages of that word, one by Jacob and now another by God through Isaiah and Micah. And neither one had anything to do with what at least the common phraseology of last days refers to. Let's search again. What about occurrence number three? This time we jump into the New Testament. In the second chapter of that fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, we notice on this occasion it was that prolific day of Pentecost when the Jews were assembled in faithful character to observe the Pentecost. In verse number 17 of that chapter, you notice it was Peter who in verse 14 had stood up and he made rather direct teaching to them. First of all, he said, Ye men of Judah. And as he addressed them, reminding them of the seriousness and solemnity of that moment. And then you notice in verse 16, they had made charge. All of you are drunken. Peter said, That isn't so. This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And then he quotes from Joel and uses the phrase, the last days. And so that brings us to notice this was in a remarkable scene. And remember, both Isaiah and Micah had stated that the last days would be characteristic of that time in which the church would be founded. And now Peter, on that same birthday of the church, quotes from Joel chapter 2, and he uses the phrase, the last days. May I submit to you that that's a rather amazing teaching, and it's something so very useful for you and me to know. The last days, you see, began a long time ago. You'll notice one more thing about that. That quotation from the book of Joel. In Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, that reference, that statement made, that there would be prophecies. Your old men would prophesy and dream dreams. Your young men and young women as well taking part in the various things permitted by God. That was an amazing event that day. And it was to be characteristic of, of course, quite a bit of time in the early stages of that church. One by one so far, the phrase, the last days, has been used biblically in a far different way than many in our common world today would use it. Let's look at the fourth one. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul addressed Timothy. And as he did so, of course, in that four-chapter book, he in fact reminded Timothy of many things characteristic of service in the church. But on this particular occasion, it was a rather solemn proceeding. Timothy, again, was told by Paul, there are going to be some grievous times in the last days. Grievous times, perilous times, the King James translation will render it. And he begins to enumerate several possibilities, in fact, several actualities in the verses that follow. Characteristic behaviors of people, what are they going to do in the last days? Well, one more time, you begin to notice, and might I ask you to reflect on that passage. It is one that has caused no small amount of controversy or difficulty. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, you notice again, verse number 1 reads like this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, Paul wrote, turn away. Now pausing at that point, you notice that's an extensive list and it doesn't sound good because it isn't good. You notice these behaviors, these ways of conduct, and they are so opposed to the upholding power of goodness and soundness and righteousness. We will in a few moments revisit that passage in a bit more detail. But may I ask, was Paul saying here that as the end of time draws near, these kinds of behaviors are going to be more occurrent? These kinds of behaviors will be more descriptive of the lot of the human family? That is a good question. Is that what that passage teaches? Well, for, the, for the, at least now, I might ask you to notice the answer is no. But let us see in a moment when we revisit it with a bit more care. We're going to look at some of the clues given in that passage and appreciate some of the features found in it. 
But you'll notice the last days was used, and it was used in a way characteristic of some behaviors that weren't very productive and good. How about the next on our, on our list? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, very near the beginning of the Hebrew letter, that letter had begun, of course, in such a thunderous and powerful fashion. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by Son. And there again, the explicit phrase, the last days, occurs. And it's in the midst of this opening description in which we appreciate that Jesus was the central feature of the one through whom the God of heaven speaks today. It isn't like in the days of those prophets in ancient times, nor like the fathers again in distant places in the past. These last days, he says, Jesus is the one through whom the God of heaven speaks. Isn't it true that as you contemplate again, it's very clear the Hebrew writer asserted they at that time were living in the last days. And it was the message of the Christ sent forth through to, of course, the human family in the reality of the last days. By now, we're beginning to see a rather strong pattern in these usages. But we have at least a couple more to go. You'll notice in James chapter 5, verse number 3, the last chapter of that letter that James wrote. You notice the first few verses of that chapter are a reminder of the difficulties that sometimes attach to riches when they're gotten in, a, in an evil way. We know that there are individuals who acquire their money in rather disadvantageous ways, to others at least. They acquire their money in a way that's wicked. They acquire it often in transactions that are somewhat deceptive. That was true even in the days of James, you see. And there were warnings in that about sometimes the challenges and difficulties that come to those who get their things that way. Well, needless to say, in the midst of it, the last days, as a phrase was employed, it is a reminder again, those last days, as you'll see on the slide, are such that treasure had already been laid up in the last days, and those that were rich that way were already enjoying, and they had nothing to look forward to when it comes to the real last day. The next one. Number seven on the list, and it'll be the last one, the last time that phrase occurs. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 3. In the midst of that last chapter in the book of Second Peter, the discussion and the reference is in many wonderful ways on motivation for spiritual growth. That book in many ways surrounds that topic in a very direct fashion. The ingredients are taught. The opposition to it is discussed. And now the motivation for it is set forth. Why should you and I want to grow spiritually? Because that chapter tells us the day of the Lord's coming. This earth's going to be destroyed and everything in it, the universe along with it, and when it does, godliness is the only thing that will be of any reward. And yet as he starts that chapter, he said there's going to be scoffers that are going to come in the last days. And these scoffers are going to question, well, it's been so long since the Lord come. And he, are you sure he's coming back? Peter said, don't you be moved by those kinds of attempts at logic. For that's the very way in which it worked in the day of Noah. 
They had no thought about a coming flood, but it came. And it destroyed this earth in terms of that which lived upon it, in the, at least on the land. And you and I appreciate that that day of the Lord is going to come, and the earth won't be destroyed by water, but it will be by fire. With that said, you and I have looked at every occurrence in the Word of God wherein that phrase, the last days, actually occurs. What are some observations, some lessons you and I might take from it? There are only four. Let's look at each one of them in turn. And as we do so, I believe we'll be motivated to appreciate the biblical usage of the last day's phrase and how that you and I can be better Bible students as we help others understand the same. We often know that there is a sensational and very captivating discussion that occurs relative to the last days. How many times have you and I heard individuals say, well, there's wars and rumors of wars. Doesn't the Bible say that then we're living in the last days? And the answer is no, for the reasons they think. The reason is yes, based on these verses that you and I have just studied. It has nothing to do with wars and rumors of wars. It has nothing to do with that kind of thing at all. That explicit phrase is found in Matthew 24, but it didn't have anything to do with the end of the world. That was had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. The first observation, though, was this. There is coming an end to time. This universe, the characteristic matter of earth, all of it is such that there really is coming an end. Although something like those scoffers may say, but it's sure been here a long time. And for everything we can tell and see, I have no reason to think it won't be here for another very long time, maybe even indefinitely. And the Word of God says that's not a correct viewpoint. There is coming an end. Look at some of these thoughts with me if you would. The Bible details how this universe began. Although many in our world would call some of that into question, I frankly confess the Bible's always right. Those details, those specifics, those appreciations given in Genesis 1 and 2 are really the way it happened. And may I suggest to you then that those details that prescribe a specific order, day 1 and day 2 and so on, those were etched and embedded in the reality of what God did. And in many ways, there are gigantic lessons to be appreciated in that ordering. But may I say, in light of the end, we don't have the same kind of detail concerning that. In fact, we don't even know when it'll be. But we do know that it will be. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find things that set in motion a statement like this one in chapter 8. In Genesis 8 verse 22, right after the flood of Noah's day, as Noah and his family disembarked from the ark, we remember that God, in fact, asserted to them by way of providential information, seed time and harvest and heat and cold shall remain until the earth is ended. The seasons and the various features of this planet are going to continue. Humanity will not be able to disrupt it. Humanity will not, in fact, bring about the end of this planet. You might have noticed in perhaps recent arenas, there was an article not too long ago that made reference to ten recognized things that might well bring about the end of the human race. In other words, destructive in such character to this planet 
that would bring about an end to humanity. And on that list were things such as nuclear war, an asteroid that hits our planet, various features of improper usage of, shall we say, energy alternatives, and we use up everything and therefore die of the coal that would come out from it. Again, the list went on and on. I'd say to you and I who are Christians, we have no fear of those things. And may I say to you, nothing about God was anywhere in the list. You see, there was fear about the way that other things may close the affairs of time, and yet the Word of God says God's going to do it, and it should be by virtue of the fact the Lord Jesus shall be returned. And following that, this earth will be consumed. The end is coming. You and I as Christians go can live without the fear that would come from those who have no hope. We can live with the trust and the confidence and assurance that if we have lived and died for the Lord, that we have no reason to fear that which lies beyond. There's coming an end. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and following, Paul even said that when the end comes in the twinkling of an eye, some are going to be changed. They're going to be humans living on this earth when the end of time comes. That indicates that man's not going to be able to destroy this planet or make it uninhabitable. There are going to be those and they're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye when the Lord returns. We don't know how long that'll be, but we do know that habitation will continue to be so. Isn't it true that in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six? We even have that sweet description in which the Lord's Supper is going to be continually observed on the first day of the week, proclaiming until the end the Lord's death. What we are doing, you see, is a timeless presentation of the truth of what happened 2,000 years ago. Isn't it fascinating to notice then that though the Bible tells us about that end, may we quickly observe that although we were given some information about when the universe began, we are given no sign such that we can ascertain when it will end. Maybe you've read articles in which scientists who've studied the nature of our sun tell us the sun is slowly expanding. And they've calculated we've got about 20 million years until the sun finally is so big that life will no longer be present. I'm absolutely sure that that's not going to be the way the earth ends. Because notice there's a sign attached to that. You could study the sun, learn about the characteristic features of its expansion, and the Lord said there are no signs, Matthew 24, 36. There's no way to ascertain the detailed specifics of when that moment shall be. Not only that, that's going to occur slowly. Paul said the Lord's going to return like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. Thieves don't send messages ahead of time telling you when they're coming. We, you and I appreciate that it's not like that at all. The last days, lesson number one, has then been the fact that the end of time will occur, but that's not the way the Bible tends to use this phrase at all. So lesson number two, the last days, as the Bible employs that phrase, is this. It is rather clearly related to the age of the church. Remember, Isaiah and Micah both had said that it would be in the last days that that house of the Lord would be established. And so the church age, that set of circumstances in time surrounding the founding of the church and thereafter is the last days. 
And may I say to you then that Peter and Paul, they all lived in the last days, and they lived 2,000 years ago. You and I today are still living in the last days because there shall be no days after the last ones. This last age of time, however long it lasts, is the last days. In addition to that, notice some of these details. In Acts chapter 2, remember again those interesting words that Peter employed. He made reference as he quoted from the prophet Joel. And then he said that these last days, and so those individuals there at Pentecost, they had the privilege of living in the last days. Isn't it amazing then to think that as those Old Testament prophets were quoted, we've read today from Isaiah and from Micah, but of course to that Joel could easily be added. Isn't it true though that even Daniel spoke about them? Now the phrase last days doesn't occur, but do you remember with me that in that tremendous dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel was blessed by God to interpret it? Reference was to a stone that pulverized the image and that stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. And in its interpretation in verse 44 of Daniel 2, the statement was made, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Don't you love the specificity and confidence of that? Never would that kingdom, and that kingdom's a church, never would it be destroyed. Isn't it fascinating then to notice? It is true that during these last days, humans can sure choose to live foolishly, and they can choose to live sinfully. That takes us right back to 2 Timothy 3. Let me ask you to revisit that and notice a couple of passages we ought not quickly overlook. I read a moment ago from verses 1 through 6 of that chapter. Notice in the context, though, what else you readily see. May I call to your attention verses 12 and 13, which again is the same context. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast been assured of. It's hard to miss the point, isn't it? He's just mentioned the last days and he's given a listing of these behaviors. And now he says to Timothy, Timothy, you be sure that in the midst of these problems and difficulties attached to the last days, verse 13, these evil men are going to wax worse and worse. Timothy was living in the midst of these behaviors, you see. It's not that Paul was looking to the what you and I would say today is that very, very emphatic description of the end of time. Timothy was living in the last days and those behaviors were present then. We know they're still present today. Do we still face covetousness? Verse 2. Do we still face those that are blasphemers and those that disobey their parents? Do we still face, verse number 3, those that are fierce and despise what's good? Do we still face, verse 4, those that are heady and stubborn and high-minded? Do we still face, verse 5, those who have an appearance of godliness but really aren't? We sure do. So you notice again, this passage is teaching in a very similar way the power of those previous ones. Two final thoughts. Lesson number three. In addition to these previous two, isn't it fascinating to notice those other New Testament references that we highlighted? James, for example. 
there, the last days, was attached very powerfully to Jesus Christ. And that doesn't surprise you and I who are Bible students. Notice again, the church was to be a careful matter attached to the founding or the beginning point of the last days. But consider the way in which Jesus Christ is such a central feature in it. In Hebrews chapter 1, again in verses 1 and 2, there had been former occasions in which God had spoken to the human family through the fathers or through prophets. But that was to be no further, because now, he says, in these last days he's spoken by his Son. May you and I never lose sight of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the way God speaks today. It is the means by which He communicates His message and His will and His truth to the human family. It's the gospel. And so the correspondence to Christ is a key feature. Could we say it like this? The last days is that region in time in which it's the gospel of Christ that's the acceptable law for the human family. And it's the law to which men are amenable. The New Testament will of Jesus Christ. Notice these last days are the very ones in which God speaks through His Son. It might well be in light of that you notice several additional passages. And I ask you to notice again some of which we've already noted. In Isaiah, the law it said would go forth from Jerusalem. What law was that? The first gospel sermon was preached in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And in the chapters that follow, it was from that place that the sound of the gospel had gone forward. It was that place, you see, that had such a powerful influence both in benevolence and otherwise in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Wasn't it true in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? And in many ways, a descriptive discussion of the entirety of the book of Acts. The whole book of Acts can be summarized in that verse. Jesus, right before He ascended back to heaven, as He in fact met with those apostles, He said to them, You will be witnesses unto Me in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and in the other most parts of the world. Notice the fourfold presentation. It'll start at Jerusalem and it'll emanate outward from there. It will advance to Samaria and that it did by the time of chapter 8. And of course, in Paul's missionary journeys, it'd go to the whole world, beginning in chapter 13. You notice again, the last days were well described in that way. Not only that, you'll notice the church is of such fundamental significance. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 21, there's a description given in which we notice to the intent that now to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you notice with me that in fact it was the wisdom of God that is seen by virtue of examination of the church? It's true that the features of this universe often testify of God's greatness, but isn't it amazing that when heavenly beings wish to appreciate the infinite wisdom and power of God, they look at the church. May you and I never lose sight of how much God loves us and the fact that so special is the church. Finally, we come to lesson number four, the truth. 
these last days, so far we've attached it to Christ and His message. We've attached it rather intricately to the church. The last era in time, though, you notice in addition we found that it's the truth that is another part and parcel of it. The truth. Those who lived in former ages could only look and in fact think about the greatness that would come with that final age of the last days. And now you and I live in it. Consider some of these thoughts with me. I find it interesting the way that that last chapter in Second Peter introduces this. Remember, there's going to come scoffers in the last days. There are going to be those who ridicule and blaspheme and actually accuse. You can't be serious about what you believe. You really think that's what's going to happen? And you think that you're living in the only acceptable way to God? May you and I never lose sight. Peter lived in the days of scoffers. And yet in that passage he said, don't ever let them dissuade you or persuade you that their way of thinking is right. And you'll notice there is a truth. Peter revealed it there and discussed it, and you and I know it so well. These scoffers, although they may have much different viewpoints about the last days, you and I know better because God's Word says better. God's Word says the truth. You and I are so honored to possess the truth. It's not that we own it. It's that we're privileged to know it. To live by it. Didn't Jesus say, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? John 8 32. You and I don't live in a world governed by relativism morally, relativism ethically, the other characteristic features in which supposedly there's no necessarily right way to do things. We know better than that. Because Peter said, There is a way of godliness, 2 Peter 3 11. Notice again, there were some who had a form that appeared to be godly, but it really wasn't. You and I know, seeing that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? The truth does exist, my friend. These are the last days, and this truth shall in fact remain in superseding brilliance until time shall be no more. May we live ardently in devotion to it, Faithful always to the teachings in it. And so it is, we can close that slide by noting again the last days. This last slide is merely conclusion. It's my attempt to summarize in a very brief way some of the things we've seen. Eight times in the Word of God this phrase, the last days, occurs. And although men have construed it in a very different way than the Bible uses it, you and I will stand firm on the Word of God. The last days is something you and I are living in right now. And we shall be in them until the end of time comes, however many centuries, however many millennia that may yet be. Because the last days started at Pentecost. And it's these last days wherein the central point is Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is the message that God demands of men. And maybe tonight there's someone who would wish to respond publicly to it. The last days may end any time, and that we do not know when. May we all live in such a way that we're always ready. This evening, if there would be anyone in the audience, maybe upon appreciation of the songs that we've sung, or the reflection on the last days of the Word of God, you'd like to make your soul's salvation certain and sure. That is possible, right? 
2 Peter 1 verse 10 says, Make your salvation sure. If you're not sure tonight, don't leave this building unsure. Don't leave with doubts and questions and don't leave with uncertainty. Paul and the others of the New Testament admonished the certainty that came with the following of the Word of God. We do read, do we not, about 1 John 5 verse 13 that says, These things are written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Do you know of your eternal life? I hope that we each do, but if you don't, it may be that you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel. We'd be honored to assist you, to help you in that, because the Lord demanded that you must believe in Him, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have taken care of that necessity, but perhaps in the days since you've become unfaithful, the Lord still loves you. He hasn't given up on you, but you've given up on Him. Why not give Him another opportunity? You know that for those who apostatize, it says the latter end with them is worse than the first. Don't leave this life in that condition. It'll be far too regretful to imagine. But if we could help you tonight by praying to God on your behalf in a means of rededication, as you confess and repent of those sins, He has promised to forgive them. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone, we'd be honored to do that and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.